Emma and Tom Talk Teaching, a podcast about all things education presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Breeze. Episode 17, Leadership in Education, with Lisa Taylor. Welcome back everyone to Emma and Tom Talk Teaching and I think we've kind of hit a bit of a record this year Tom. I'm sure this must be a record year for the number of new guests because we've got another new guest. Maybe it's because uh, due to Covid we've actually been able to connect with more guests but um, I've got a bit of a story attached to this guest before I introduce her to everyone. Back in May of 2020, we were in the throes of the first lockdown and we'd put out an Easter special and some of our avid listeners may uh, have heard it where we found it quite difficult to contain our hilarity when we were listening to a story about cake fines. It was in the policing profession, profession, wasn't it, Tom? Yeah, I remember it well. And then in May, I had this lovely email in my inbox from our guest today, just appreciating that episode and, and kind of sharing some <laughs> some lovely stories of her own that might have incurred a, a, a cake fine. So without further ado, Lisa Taylor, welcome to our humble podcast. Thank you very much. And I'm absolutely thrilled to be on the podcast. As you said, I've, I've listened to it for quite a while now and I really enjoy your episode. So I'm really, really pleased and privileged to be here today. And we are more than happy to have you with us. So we should probably tell everybody that you are the Director of Initial Teacher Education at the University of South Wales. But um, first of all, tell us about your background in education and academia and your role at USW. Okay, so, well, I know it sounds a bit cheesy, but I'd always wanted to be a teacher. My, my paternal grandparents were both teachers and my grandfather was a head teacher. So I'd been brought up with teaching as a part of my background and um, I decided from an early age that I wanted to go into teaching and I studied English drama and primary teaching in Exeter University and absolutely loved it. Came back to Wales, my love of English literature actually led me into the secondary pathway rather than sticking with primary and also having studied in Exeter I didn't actually speak any Welsh because I hadn't learned it in school so I decided to go into secondary rather than primary at that point and actually never looked back. Stayed as a secondary school English teacher for a couple of years in one school and then my husband and I decided to take a year out to go travelling around the world. So we did that and then came back and was lucky to get a job more or less straight away in another local school. Taught there, was part-time for 10 years while I had my two children and they were growing up. Then became head of department, then assistant head teacher in the same school. Then my children attended there and we live in the catchment area. And I was there for nearly 20 years. And then a secondment opportunity to USW um, landed in my inbox. Um, I'd been a mentor and a senior mentor of ITE students and NQTs for many years and absolutely loved that part of the role. And I thought, well, I was really happy in my job. I didn't, didn't want to leave, hadn't been looking to leave. But I thought, well, okay, why not? Why not try? Why not take this opportunity? So I thought the idea of being a teacher educator was really, really exciting, you know, this, the kind of next step. So I took the leap and here I am. I'm now Director of ITE, as you've said, but I'm also Deputy Head of School. So I oversee not just the initial teacher education courses, but a number of other courses across the school. 
and you're here to talk about leadership and actually I do remember in that Easter special where where our flimsy masks of professionalism finally slipped and we, we got the giggles one of the other things we talked about <laughs> was uh, senior leaders and, and I remember we had a we had an offer out for anybody in any kind of senior leadership role to come and speak to us because I know it's it's very easy isn't it for people down at the coalface to kind of use them as, as an easy target I suppose <laughs> something I'd quite like to explore a little bit with you is actually the fact that that there's been a bit of an evolution in a way in the last sort of 10 or 15 years because when I started as a teacher the my bosses were called the senior management team mm. and they've sort of I remember one day changed their name to the senior leadership team and I remember sort of faintly cynically thinking well <laughs> you know you might you might change your name but have you, have you actually turned into <laughs> leaders necessarily you know it's, it's gonna, absolutely <laughs> it might take more than that so so why don't we start by kind of batting around this question of well you know why why do we now talk about leadership rather than management what's the difference you know why why have we made that evolution that's a really interesting question and um i mean from my own perspective i think both leaders and managers are vital to the success of any organization and i was in the same position you know we used to be smt and then we became slt and yeah you, I, can, I can imagine some of the conversations that went on in the staff and who do they think they are that kind of thing but i think for me the distinction although it's rather reductive is that managers are, are operational and leaders are more strategic and I know it's not as simple as that but that's that's the kind of thing that I sort of try and use when I'm trying to explain it my views to others so for me a manager sort of builds the systems and mechanisms and ensures that things run smoothly seeks to assign tasks and sort of tell people what to do it's a bit it feels a bit sort of operational a bit sort of well, this is what we have to do and we're just going to do it you know that sort of thing whereas for me a leader perhaps is a bit more aspirational and inspirational builds loyalty builds trust through the systems brings out the best in others by coaching and challenging them i mean what i really like um mcdermott and hall's take on this that they say the good leader evokes and draws forth leadership from their team so that's that's the sort of distinction I look for. I think both are needed, as I said, in an organisation, but I think it's far more nurturing and inspiring to be led rather than managed. Because as I said, I think management sounds a bit sort of top down and done to rather than done with, which I think leadership is. Which kind of leads me to wonder whether perhaps one should rename one's top team wholesale uh, from a management team to a leadership team, an SMT to an SLT. Yes. Should it not be an SLMT? Because, you know, if, if you all wholesale become a leadership team, does that potentially, if, if you're not careful, send a message that those vital kind of operational skills are perhaps not welcome at the top? I think so. I think you can't have one without the other. Can you? You can have somebody who's very sort of vision and strategic driven, but if you haven't got the the operational bit happening as well, there's a disconnect, isn't there? And things all all fall all slip through the net. So yeah, I think that's that's a really good point, Tom. So at the start of this season of episodes, Lisa, I'm sure you'll know as a as an avid listener yourself, we, we've been trying to articulate to our student teachers, particularly our personal philosophy for what we do. And it strikes me that, you know, you've had a really interesting path, a lot of sort of different changes in your career, as you've just said to us at the start. How has your personal philosophy as a leader grown and changed and sort of perm the different permutations of it and to where you are now uh, as a leader and as, as as director of ITE at USW? 
Yeah, I, I mean, this is something that we work on with our students right from the beginning as well, is, is getting them really to think about why they came into teaching, what's their philosophy for teaching and learning. And of course, that grows, as you say, over time. But I think... For me, my personal philosophy has always been informed by what Michael Fullan terms moral purpose, that social responsibility to others and the environment to seek to make a difference to the lives of students and staff. So I've always placed relationships, trust, inclusivity and collaboration at the core or aimed to, to place those at the core of what I do. And that was my philosophy as a class teacher and a form tutor. And it grew and expanded, I guess, as I became head of department and then assistant head, and now in my, my current role in HE. So I think it's important to have that philosophy and, and think about those things and read and have, have your philosophy informed by your reading and research. And then not just stop and think right I'm a leader now I've got to have something different but to grow on it and and develop it because essentially that philosophy is part of you and your identity as an educator and I'll always call myself a teacher even though my husband teases me you know I haven't been in the classroom to actually teach for a while now I'm I, you know that's at the heart of of who we are and what we do so I think the path to answer the second part of your question the path to leadership for me, really, was a series of serendipitous opportunities, I think. I had my first taste of it actually very early on in my career. I'd only been teaching for 18 months and I was very young because I was, uh, started teaching when I was 22. And um, we were due for an Estin inspection and the um, head of department had, had to go off to have an operation. And nobody else in the department was really sort of willing, I suppose, to take over with with an inspection looming. So um, the head, you know, all credit to the head at that time, placed his faith in me and said, well, can you lead the department through the inspection? And of course, I was young. And yes, I thought this was a great opportunity. And I took that. And I think it was a scary time. But, you know, what 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 doesn't kill you makes you stronger, really. And it, it was a really great opportunity that I look back on and, and developed a lot of skills that I've taken forward. I then again became, uh, as I mentioned, uh, a head of department then much later again, and then an assistant head. And I think, as I said, I think my, my moral purpose has always stayed with me as my sort of inherent philosophy for teaching. And I get, I've, I've taken a constructivist approach as well, thinking about Vygotsky, uh, that knowledge is constructed for, and individuals learn from one another. And I've built on that as well, I think, through my leadership roles, particularly in this current role as we've built our US SWIT partnership, working with, you know, fantastic schools, working with the consortia um, and working with our students to help them build their own individual teacher identities as well. Now, it's interesting you mentioned research there and, and we all know as teacher educators, people kind of working in the education landscape, uh, that we're trying to make teaching a research-informed profession much more than it has been in the past. You know, and I, I suppose I flatter myself that we are making some really good progress there. One of the kind of oddities, I suppose, of the education world is that, that very, very often, particularly in schools, the leadership team is pretty much always made up of people who've made their way up from the classroom, who are there as teachers you know and then they become leaders and I've always sort of I think I think early in my career I, I was very happy to be be led by ex-teachers you know I felt they needed to put their time in you know at the, at the chalk face as they say and then I, I kind of started to wonder well do we actually help these people become leaders you know when they become leaders or they, do they just get booted upstairs so what research do we have is leadership a research informed 
profession, I suppose, is, is the question I'm asking. And if so, what is the research saying about what we do and what we should do? That's a really good question because it absolutely should be. But as we know, you know, when you're a busy leader of a big school or a small school, and especially at the times that we find ourselves in at the moment, having that time and space to become involved in research is, is and to, to read the evidence is, is very, very tricky. So I think the more that we can do as um, university par IT partnerships, to provide those opportunities for leaders. Um, we can't provide necessarily the time and space, but we can certainly provide the structured opportunities and, and open those out to our, our schools and our leaders. Then, then we're doing some, going some way to sort of not be tokenistic about it, but actually saying, you know, let, let's, what we do matters. Let's look at the evidence. Let's, let's look at the research and let's build on that um, so that whatever we do has impact. From what I see from the, the leaders that I speak to and work with, a number of them are extremely well informed. I mean, just, just on a sort of a, a very practical level, something like Twitter, you know, lots of people sharing teach meets and um, all the research ed networks and so on. You know, there's a, there's a lot of talk about research and reading and keeping up with the current research, because of course there's so much out there. I think one of our roles as IT providers is to perhaps filter that down and share some of the, the what we deem as being the, the best and most current research out there with our with our school partners. And, and I know that that goes on in schools as well. And lots, some of the schools we work with have renamed their inset days as professional learning days or their staff meetings as professional learning meetings. And they're sharing that research with their staff at every level as well and asking them to comment on it and apply it to their own practice and then reflect upon it and feedback. But in terms of the sort of research about leadership, I mean, I've one of the things that I've looked at quite closely for my um, MA study a couple of years ago was about collaborative leadership. And I come back to, I mentioned Michael Fullan already, but I come back to him and what he calls the three R's of leadership, which are relationships, relationships, relationships. And for me, um, it's really important to look at the research about providing the right conditions for teams to grow and develop and knowing through looking at that that sometimes growth and development can be challenging it can be messy it can be uncomfortable what i like to call professionally disruptive if you like you know pushing colleagues sometimes out of their comfort zones but it, but that encourages them to grow you know for example i i asked a, a member of um, one of my teams when i was in school to lead on a whole school issue and and she was quite me what 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 can i you know there's a lot of people with more experience than me but she'd done something that was particularly innovative and was working really well and i wanted her to share that with the whole school and she was really nervous about it she went on and did it i supported her to put that together and to to lead in on that and afterwards she said you know i would never have put myself forward for that but actually it was re I found it really, really rewarding. And she went on then to lead um, events of, uh, throughout the region, not just within the school and, and develop and grow that agency and that, that self-efficacy. So I think it comes back to me to that quote from John Shedd about a ship in the harbour is safe, but that's not what ships are built for. You know, we, we need to look at that research. We need to look at the evidence and take informed decisions about how we're going to move things forward in our organisations, how we go into challenge staff and grow forth those leaders that we want to develop. 
And it's really reassuring to see that this kind of new language and culture shift that feels to be kind of really sort of stemming from the reforms, not only within education more broadly, but also within initial teacher education, that we've now got a brand new set of professional standards for teaching and leadership um, in Wales. Uh, it's so important, clearly, they've put it in the title, but some of the things that you've talked about, like professional learning, opportunities for teachers to grow, to share, to innovate and to collaborate, we, these are named in our new standards for teaching and leadership. So we, we are mandating ITE students to make sure that they are demonstrating, even at, you know, QTS level, at qualified teacher status level, that they are trying to innovate, that they're trying to collaborate with others to move their practice forward, but also that they're showing leadership in their own small kind of domain early on in their in their training. So to a novice teacher, what does leadership mean? And, and if they are aspiring and if they want to grow, and we know that actually as a side point in the teaching profession in general, we've got a real problem with lose, with the attrition rates from the profession and losing teachers because they don't see necessarily that professional growth and development opportunity visibly um, when they get into it. So to a novice, how can we help them to develop that those fundamental leadership qualities and dispositions early on? in their IT experiences? That's really interesting because I think the leadership qualities that I I think are essential for an effective leader are qualities that are essential for an effective student teacher, an effective class teacher, head of department, you know, whatever we're, middle leader, whatever we're talking about, I think they apply at all levels. And as you said, I mean, leadership is a whole dimension on its own in the professional standards, which demonstrates the importance of those leadership qualities and believing in in our capacity to develop those, whatever our our role in a school is to develop those and develop our own sense of agency right from the very beginning. So the features that I think are important, as I mentioned, you know, collaboration, but empathy, being kind, which doesn't mean shying away from the challenging or difficult conversations, but doing it with empathy and kindness and making time to listen and trust and also being kind to yourself. Because, I mean, let's face it, some of us, we speak far more harshly to ourselves than we'd ever speak to anybody else. But being kind to ourselves and trusting ourselves and our own judgments. And of course, that's difficult when you're very early in your career because you're looking at for the knowledgeable other. You know, you look the more knowledgeable other, rather, you're looking at your mentor and you're looking at your university tutor and some of your peers who you feel perhaps are making better progress than you are. But it's then about having those t opportunities and that time to reflect and taking all of those ideas in from the research that, that you're exposed to, from the views and the experiences that you observe in schools and in university, you know, taking all of that and having that reflective time and becoming that reflective practitioner. And I think that's something that we as teacher educators have, have worked really hard to make sure that we're offering those structured opportunities to our student teachers to be reflective, to encourage them to read, to listen and learn. And ultimately, the best teachers are the best learners. And I think, you know, this this whole idea of inquiry as a stance, as Cochrane, Smith and Little talk about, you know, to be inquirers, to investigate practice, to build that understanding of what it is to be a teacher and to build that understanding and knowledge of the pedagogical 
approaches that you can take and and practicing with those researching those and knowing when to apply the most effective pedagogical approach to achieve the outcomes that you want to achieve for your learners in your classroom at that time in that particular school i think for us that's the most important thing we can do in developing student teachers is to give them that time to be reflective and like i said those opportunities to be reflective because that builds resilience we talk a lot about resilience and it does annoy me sometimes that that's almost chucked out there that oh we all need to be resilient you know to cope with everything that's going on but actually it's our moral duty to build that resilience and support student teachers to build that resilience and i think one of those ways is through encouraging them to be reflective because it's quite hard to ask disruptive questions of others but it's also very hard to ask those of ourselves as well and this comes back to the philosophy of teaching that if you very fundamentally believe in in your philosophy of teaching your moral purpose when you are sort of asking yourself those difficult questions and you know the big the big questions the how and the why rather than just the what of teaching you know why am i doing this what would happen if i didn't do this how could i do this differently if you always come back to your philosophy of teaching and your moral purpose then you know eventually you should be able to come up with those really effective answers but that's where reflection is important because it provides that space where you can absorb all the things you've been told all the things that you've read the things that you've seen but actually you've got to find the answer from within you know it's that it's got to be authentic to you and to your philosophy of teaching so and yes informed by all of those things and you look through all those different lenses but actually reflection provides you that time to be creative and be innovative in your own way whilst being informed by all those those other things there's a couple of other features of leadership that i just wanted to mention i mean we've, i've talked about relationships emotional intelligence is fundamental to effective leadership and again that's something we need whatever stage of our career we're in you know being sensitive to the needs that drive behavior and i think leaders sometimes may you know there's so much to do that perhaps the temptation is to stay in your office to to get stuck into the emails and to get on with the self-evaluation and the development plan and all of those sort of things but i think taking that time to build those relationships and be invisible being relentlessly optimistic modeling those behaviors behaviors you expect to see from others and being present one of the valuable lessons i learned um in my career was was sort of seeing leaders actually being willing to roll up their sleeves and get on and muck in you know when things got difficult so maybe when there was a cover there was a lot of cover that was needed you know a head teacher would go and perhaps offer to do a cover lesson or an additional duty or deal with a particularly tricky parent or something like that so so that's another aspect of leadership i think that that is really important is is emotional intelligence and being visible and being present and not pretending that you know everything we're not expected to know everything perhaps from sometimes showing a little bit of vulnerability as well and and to go back to the research i really like this this quote from adair and i've written this down so i didn't, didn't get it wrong but this is something that i keep returning to and it comes back to what we talked about at the beginning of the podcast about leadership and management and it's um it says you you can be appointed a manager but you are not a leader until your appointment is ratified in the hearts and minds of people and again i think that applies to us as as leaders in the classroom you know whatever our role it's that that sense of leadership and responsibility that what we're doing is such an important an important job and that we you know we 
we're really committed to doing it well. It's really refreshing to hear you talk about, you know, the moral purpose that you have at the core of what you do. It's probably true to say that pretty much everybody comes into teaching with a very, very strong sense of moral purpose. It's also true, I think, to say that at times the the education world can feel like a very kind of punitive world you know the results culture keeping on the right side of the inspectors you know the all that kind of thing the, the banding we have in Wales the league tables they have in England um, I suppose there have probably been times when I've shied away from the idea of leadership because maybe I feel it's I have the luxury of being able to hang on to my moral purpose more easily perhaps the further down the bottom of the the heap I go but we don't want to be compromising our moral purpose the closer we get to some of those punitive things if if you were speaking to an aspiring educational leader perhaps who is at the student teacher level would you have any words of advice and comfort for them about hanging on to that moral purpose the the more kind of responsibility they get and the more pressure they get hmm that's a challenging one isn't it because there is a disconnect sometimes between you know this sort of idea of a trusting environment and a collaborative environment and a developmental environment against the backdrop of accountability which sometimes can feel quite sort of uh, top down i think I think the advice, gosh, I would give is, is, and I know I've, I've said this already, is to is to come back to yourself and to your to your moral purpose, and always to try and keep that at the heart of what you do. Yes, there are times when you're going to have to ask people to do things, you know, that you you perhaps rather not have to do. You know, um, you might have to have those, like I said, those difficult conversations. But I think if you've got collaboration. And a collab. If you've worked hard to try and establish a collaborative culture in your school, and that's not easy. That's not easy at all because collaboration can be done quite badly in some cases um, without having the knowledge and the understanding and the, and having read the research and the evidence about collaborative uh, creating collaborative cultures. It can t- appear to be a bit tokenistic. And a bit sort of, I think, I think Hattie talks about sort of people just sharing war stories and anecdotes and all oh, that'll never work here and that kind of thing. So I think my advice would be to to read, to learn, to be curious, to watch others, to observe, but always stay true to your moral purpose. If you if you build a good team around you, if you build that decisional capital if you're really committed to modeling and growing leadership and like I said that can happen in the classroom with your with your class with your learners you can grow leadership within within your learners you can ask you know give them roles to undertake in the classroom involve them in the decision making empower them to take risks you you can build those capacities within yourself and within your learners at, at any level I think I would also advise that you model trust I um, not start at a deficit that, you know, oh, people aren't going to do this unless I tell them they've got to do it. You know, provide the right environment, but model trust and, and try and develop a shared vision center on, centered on the learning of all learners. Certainly have a strong network and coll- around you, whether that's family, friends or a combination of that, good colleagues and in this digital world, spread that wider, you know, grow a network on perhaps Twitter with other leaders, other student teachers and other teachers who are aspiring to be leaders and draw on those networks as well. Um, 
It's, it's a big, it's a big, big question because it, it is a challenge. And as you said, schools can be difficult environments to work in. But I think if, if you sort of worked hard to build the foundations and create that collaborative culture and that everybody can feel valued and feel valuable to the institution as well and sharing that sort of shared vision and values then it becomes hardwired in the school and hardwired in you and I think that can that can certainly go some way to making that collaborative culture sustainable and overcoming some of those difficulties and challenges. Thank you very much Lisa and you've talked a lot now about the importance of collaboration and and collaborative leadership and I wondered if there was anything else you had to say about that within the context of schools as learning organisations which is something that the OECD um, has promoted and has actually investigated in, in terms of how we're making gaining momentum with this in Wales so what does collaborative leadership look like in a school environment? Yeah, um, it was interesting, actually, you mentioned the OECD, because in their Schools as Learning Organisation survey in 2018, they found a bit of a disconnect between teachers' perceptions of their school as a learning organisation and head teachers' perceptions, particularly in secondary schools. And so I go back to that, what I said earlier about great heads being in t- needing to be in touch with their staff and their learners, listening and showing that they care and being visible. And that is difficult because you have to look at things through so many different lenses, you know, but ultimately you're the one that the buck stops with, you're the one that has to make a decision. But I think if you've got that that supportive network around you of senior leaders and um, middle leaders and so on, then you, you've, you've created those conditions to create that decisional capital. And for me, that comes back to one of the dimensions of the Schools as Learning Organisation model, which is about modelling and growing leadership, which I've talked about before, about empowering others to take those risks and feel that they can make a difference. And that then builds their their own sense of agency, which is a quality of leadership in itself. The the other elements of the Schools as Learning Organisation, developing a shared vision centred on the learning of all learners, again, that comes through trust, promoting team learning and collaboration amongst all staff. That's down to leaders providing the right conditions to be able to do that. So those providing that time and that space, whether it's a bit of time off timetable, whether it's putting a whole whole staff meetings over to professional learning and collaborative professional learning and actually valuing what the staff are doing and giving them opportunities to share that with the rest of the school. And establishing that culture of inquiry, innovation and exploration, which again is another dimension of the um, schools as learning organisations. So I think all of those things then, you can tell when you walk into a great school, you can just sense it. You know when you walk into a great school because the visions and values are what Michael Barber calls hardwired and a rather cheesy quote from uh, a website I saw, I can't remember which one it was, but uh, fairly recently, is that the values and visions are lived, not just laminated. You can tell that when you go into a great school. And I think that comes down to the aspects that I've sort of talked about and a lot more besides. You've certainly given us plenty to think about here and and a sense of, of what leadership can and should look like and actually the 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 massive influence it can have on that kind of health 
and well-being of the school uh, you know community it's it really does stem from that leadership so thank you for that and we've, we've got a lot more to talk with you about I think uh, we'll have to have you back again Lisa down the line <laughs> but I just want to do before we move on to our short slots I wanted to pick your brain about something that's also I know um, very close to all of our hearts within uh, initial teacher education and it's about increasing capacity for research within ITE um, for us as as ITE tutors and academics but also with our student teachers and I wondered if you have had any thoughts about the kind of the health of research in ITE in Wales at the moment and um, and what you're proud of uh, in terms of any sort of gains that you're making in USW with your school communities etc um, and what your thoughts are on that in general. Yeah, it's it's an interesting question. It's 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 a bit of a slow burn, I think, in Wales, and it's been quite um, a culture shift, I think, for some teacher educators that have been in in this profession a, a long time. And I think the biggest shift has been the sharing of research and research opportunities with our school partners as well and developing that as a partnership and collaborating as partnerships but also collaborating as HEIs across Wales so there's a there are a number of Welsh government funded um, opportunities that um, have come out in the last few years and are, are ongoing at the moment that we're involved in and I know that you Cardiff Met are involved in another ITE partnerships across across Wales so that's been a great development I think as a leader what what we what we try and do within USW is we try and create time and space for our IT staff to pursue their research interests, whether that's formal in terms of masters or uh, PhDs or EDDs, or whether that's more informal um, in terms of some exploring something that they want to explore. Some of them do it collaboratively, sorry, collaboratively with their students as well or whether it's in terms of outputs such as publications or presentations or book chapters um, we've we've been very lucky to have an associate professor working with us and um, Caroline Daly and she provided us with a number of opportunities to produce joint publications benefiting from her experience in this field so that that was very very empowering for a number of members of staff and and also for members of our IT partnership so we did some joint presentations at IPDA this year and at the um, USET conference too. And we were on to do that at BIRA, but of course, unfortunately that was canceled last year and we're submitting abstracts again to be able to do some joint presentations this year as well. So um, yeah, it's, it's, it's about building confidence. It's about doing it incrementally. I'm a huge fan of Dave Brailsford and marginal gains. And I used to use that in my teaching and a bit of an aside, but I've got to get this in. I actually bumped into him in um, when we were on holiday in Morzine in the French Alps. Well, I say bumped into him, actually sort of uh, harassed, harassed him and went up to him and spoke to him. But um, he, we were there on um, the day that the Tour de France um, arrived in Morzine and it was totally by chance, but we're both big cyclists, myself and my husband. And uh, as luck would have it, the Sky, uh, Team Sky camp was opposite our chalet and we were walking back after watching um all the cyclists come in after the mountain stage and it was a fantastic atmosphere and i saw um dave brailsford and i i as i said i'd been looking into his marginal gains work and had used it actually with them um, a couple of my english classes and it'd been very very effective particularly with less confident learners about how the, the small things that they can do can actually add up to have a big impact so I went over to him and my children were mortified and I said, you know, do you mind if I just 
can I have a quick chat with you? And I talked to him about this and he was very, very generous. And he said, well, what you've just told me is far more important than anything that I'll do as a manager of Team Sky or anything else. And I was really touched by that and uh, actually had a bit of a tear in my eye, which uh, again was to the embarrassment of both my teenage children at the time. But I think in terms of marginal gains, it's building that confidence and those skills incrementally. And that's with our student teachers too, exposing them to challenging you know, articles and, and publications, but breaking down that fear and that mystery of what research is, breaking down those perceptions that people in all stages of their career have and and giving them opportunities to build their confidence so that maybe, you know, they when they'll consider presenting at a conference or dare I say it, submitting an article to a journal for, uh, you know, peer review, which can be very daunting. But yeah, <laughs> for me, it's about building, building the, those incrementally building those, those skills and the, that confidence and pri- providing them with the opportunities to do that. Marginal gains. <laughs> gains, yes. And you're a Caroline Daly fan, aren't you, Emma? She's another one we want on the podcast one of these days. Oh, she's amazing. <laughs> she really is. I remember being sat in a car. I was appointed uh, her, her driver. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> Not really. I was uh, I was taking her to school visits. Um, oh. Spent a lot of time in the car chatting with her. And yeah. uh, I remember excitedly calling Tom and, and telling him, I want to be a reader. That's what I want to do. That's <laughs> I want to be a reader because Caroline's a reader and I want to be a reader too. And uh, yeah, here I am at the foot of Mount Everest that is my ED and uh, reader. Mm. Couldn't, couldn't feel further away right now but um you know marginal gains i'm reminded lisa that you know every every article that i read every word that i write is a, a step in the right direction absolutely absolutely thank you uh, lisa we're gonna see whether you've done your homework now because nobody's exempt from their homework and our regular short slots do you have something to try and this could be something in the classroom something out of the classroom something for a leader or somebody at the foothills of that Everest it doesn't really matter I have done my homework Tom because I'm a, I'm, a, I'm very good <laughs> I'm very compliant but I have to, I do have to admit and my children would would back me up on this I I hate choosing my favorites having to land on one thing I find very very difficult so I failed miserably in um the next question you're going to ask me but actually in terms of something to try and it comes I've mentioned this already but it's it's about taking time for yourself and be it that being so important now for me I started this uh, a couple of years ago I, I set my alarm clock earlier and so that I could get up and make time for myself whether that was just having a cup of tea outside in the garden and thinking about my day now I'm realize I'm in a very privileged position to be working from home at the moment and have been for almost a year so I'm able to get up early and go for a run get out in the fresh air and that really mentally prepares me for the day and I'm not saying everybody should get up and go for a run I think everybody needs to do what works for them whether it's some yoga or just as I said sitting in with a cup of tea in the garden but reflecting and making that mental list sort of preparing yourself for the day I heard on a podcast a while ago it was on Desert Island Disc and I can't remember who said it but they said bring yourself to the day rather than the day coming to you and I think for me I, I would advise if possible, and I appreciate not everybody's, um, you know, an early riser, but setting your alarm clock a little bit earlier, and it, it is difficult at the moment with it being very dark, it's easier in the summer when it's light, but, and giving yourself that time in the morning to do something for yourself, whether it's reading, whatever it is, to bring yourself to the day so that you're mentally prepared for what the day brings to you. 
Lovely. I really like that. Thank you very much, Lisa. And that's definitely something that I've been trying to do. My uh, my other half's brother actually talks about reading yourself into the day. Yeah. Um, and uh, that's something that I, I, I like to do, whether it's just kind of catching up on the news headlines or, um, you know, dipping into my novel. Sometimes it feels like a bit of a luxury to be reading a novel, a novel first thing in the morning or to be doing something for yourself first thing in the morning. But actually, yeah. you're right. You then come to the day on your terms and feel much more refreshed for it okay so the next one is something interesting so it can be something you've been reading watching listening to have you got something interesting to share well and this is where I failed I'm afraid because I, I think it's interesting but I've got two so if I'm if I'm allowed to share two <laughs> of um, course. And, and the reason for this is because I'm aware of your diverse audience and what we've been talking about today in terms of leadership but so I've got two books to share and the first one and I'm sure it's on your reading list but it's a weighty tome reflective teaching in schools by Pollard I really recommend this to your student teachers in fact anybody in teaching but actually you know specifically thinking about student teachers like I said it's a, a huge tome but it's very um, user-friendly it's very thought-provoking it's pra- it provides practical activities practical support to, for things to try in the classroom um, for those busy teachers you know when when uh, time is short but it's also evidence informed and it it describes and explains the principles and concepts to continue developing our skills and developing our expertise and there's a fantastic section on building relationships there and the importance of that in terms of making sure that you know learners well-being is looked after and staff well-being is looked after so that uh, academic progress can take place the second book that I'd like to recommend is by Michael Fuller and I've mentioned him a few times today as well leading in a culture of change and I think that's really relevant at the moment as well and and because as I keep sort of saying to my teams you know the only certainty at the moment is that we've got change and change is going to keep coming and keep coming at pace at short notice so he talks about the key dimensions of leadership that are crucial in times of change no surprise moral purpose but also an understanding of change and how to perhaps overcome deep and lasting change by building relationships, creating and sharing knowledge and creating coherence. So there's a lot of other books I could recommend as well, uh, both education-wise and otherwise, but uh, those are the two I'd like to recommend today. And you've talked a lot about uh, leaders looking after the well-being of their teams. So what about the leader herself? How do you look after your well-being? (laughs) Well, a number of ways, but um, I I think I'll repeat what I said for there's something to try getting out in the fresh air, even if it's raining, running, walking, cycling, gardening. I love all those things, particularly running. And I have to give a bit of a a mention to a run-ed network that's been set up by um, a friend of ours, Ty Golding back last November and it's he's built a great community of um, educators across not just across Wales but nationally and internationally now where we support each other in our in our running and um, running for me is provides headspace it releases those endorphins it suppresses the cortisol so it helps with our emotional and psychological well-being I love it I love yoga I love being part of a network but as I said for anybody else it's whatever makes makes you feel well and supports your well-being but I certainly recommend getting out in the fresh air every day particularly at the moment where we're you know at home a lot and uh, stuck inside because it's far too easy to spend hours and hours and hours working and answering emails and before you know it it's seven o'clock and the day's gone and you haven't done anything for yourself too true 
Thank you very much, Lisa. And thank you from um, an email back in May <laughs> that uh, really did make a difference to my well-being. I've got to say at that time, it was lovely. Sometimes oh, you can feel that you're, uh, you're speaking into the abyss, but we've had a few different connections, either on Twitter or you know via the podcast. Mm. So it's good to finally get you on and uh, and get talking about something that you're very passionate about. And you've given us a lot to, to think about there. And as I said, it'd be really great to have you back down the line um, to pick your brain a little bit more about any one of the the themes that we've talked about in this podcast episode. So thank you and uh, and stay well. Thank you. And I'd be absolutely delighted to come back. And uh, I'd just like to say a huge well done and, you know, congratulations and good luck to all, all your listeners, because whatever stage of their career they're at, they're working in an extremely challenging environment. And from what I see and what I hear, they're doing a, an absolutely tremendous job. So uh, thank you and uh, hope to see you again soon. Thanks, Lisa. They certainly are. Well, we'll be back in a fortnight with something else. Um, But that's it for now. Another episode done. Thank you, Emma. Thank you, Lisa. And we'll be back soon. See you soon. You've been listening to Emma and Tom Talk Teaching, a podcast about all things education presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Breeze. The special guest this episode was Lisa Taylor, who's the Director of Initial Teacher Education at the University of South Wales. Thanks to Lisa for taking part. Podcast artwork is by Beth Blandford and the music is by Cameron Stewart. We'll be back in a fortnight with something else interesting. Until then, take care and enjoy teaching. Enjoy teaching.